Now on Distinct Nostalgia, we begin a mini-series celebrating Britain's biggest and most successful movie franchise outside the Bond films. We are, of course, talking about the carry-ons. And over the next three programmes, we're going to meet three actors who starred in some of the most popular of those wonderful films. Julian Holloway and Richard O'Callaghan have been talking to Ashley. But first up, star of four carry-ons, Jungle, Matron, Loving and Convenience, the lovely Jackie Piper. She's been taking a trip down memory lane with Mark Burrows. Jackie Piper, welcome along to Distinct Nostalgia. Thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Mark. It's lovely to be here. Really lovely. And it's lovely to talk Mm -hmm. to you. Um, It would have been nicer in person, but obviously we're doing the Zoom thing. It would have been so much nicer in person. We could have been in a pub, having a pub lunch. Girl after my own heart. <laughs> I was thinking tea and biscuits, but a, a beer is even better. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I suppose we'll have to be uh, content with the Zoom thing yes. with the, uh, in these uh, times of COVID. Yes. Uh, but that'll all change. Well, you know, maybe at some point we'll get to have a proper chat face-to-face. Uh, let's go back to the very start. When did you first realise you wanted to act? Was it a very early age Yes, I think uh, when I was about five, I was in a play at my infant school about Br'er Rabbit. You're too young to remember Br'er Rabbit, but he was a sort of cartoony character. And I played this Br'er Rabbit in the school play at five. And everything I said, everybody laughed because it was a comment. It was the best part in the play because I was Br'er Rabbit, I think. And I thought, oh, this is fun. I like this. (laughs) I had to put little shows on in the garden and things, roping my poor friends we used to um, give them orange juice and sweets and things in the garage and charge them a penny to come in and do shows in the garden. <laughs> so, as well as, so as well as acting from a young age, you were kind of an entrepreneur as well then, really? I was, really, yes. I made a, made a little bit of a profit in splitting up tubes of Rolos or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But we used to do all that. My mother used to get migraine, and when she went to bed with a migraine... I said to my friends, oh, my mum's in bed with a migraine, let's do a show. <laughs> so we all did a show in the garden when my poor mum was in bed. Oh, bless. <laughs> did, so, and obviously it stemmed from five then, and you carried on from the age of five up until now, even. Uh, did you, so from the age of five, did, was it that, that was it, I want to be an actress when I leave school? I, that's all I want to do? Yes. Was there any change at any point? It was very difficult, though, because my parents were very worried about it and very against the whole thing. And I went to a very traditional um, grammar school and they were totally against it. And when you had to write down what career you wanted to do, and I used to put actress, they used to say, cross that out, Jacqueline. We want something sensible there. You'd be a very good almoner. And they'd always make me cross it out. So I was never allowed to pursue the dream with backing from family or schools. They were all horrified at my choices They wanted me to go to university and work in a bank, really. They wanted safety for me, really. That's all it was. But did that make you more determined, though, to become an actress? Did that sort of push you, make you dig your heels in and thought, right, I'll show them? Well, I think it did, actually. I think it did. So I left school after my O-levels because I wanted to go to drama school. My parents wouldn't let me audition for drama school until I'd done a business degree. So I did a two-year business degree And then I left and I worked part-time at the university and paid my way through Birmingham Theatre School. But I never finished the course because after the first year, there was an advert in the stage advertising for a student ASM for £2 a week at Rill. 
with Michael Gaunt and Paul Elliott as the producer and director. And um, so my parents wouldn't lend me the money. And the man I'm married to now, Douglas, I was with him since I was 16, he wouldn't lend me the money. My parents confiscated my post office book. So I had no way of getting to London. So my friend Roz... She said she'd help me, so we put our best suede coats on. And unknown to my parents, we went and stood on the motorway, the M1, and hitched a ride to London. And I hitched to the audition. So, again, costing you nothing at all. So, so I got know. to the audition and I had to read and audition. And they said to me, Paul Elliott and Michael Gordon said to me, well, how will you survive? Because last year's student ASM was on an allowance from her family. And I said, no, I haven't got an allowance, but I'll just get a part-time job while I'm there. And they laughed. Well, they laughed because I was working from eight in the morning till midnight every day because you were setting up this weekly rep. So the student ASM was helping build the sets, paint the sets, dress the sets, uh, be in the plays, and then clear up on a Wednesday, take everything down, put it into removal vans and put the new one up. So there was no free time. So they just laughed. Um, and I went back. And then on the way back, the car we hitched in had a crash. Wow. On the motorway. And I thought I was going to die. <laughs> but it just went into a spin and came to a stop. And everybody was alive. And it turned out the young driver hadn't got a driving license or insurance or anything so we got out of the car and hitched in another car for the rest of the way home <laughs> so then I didn't hear anything to begin with and um, then I decided I was working part-time to pay my way through drama school so I got another job in the evenings at, as a waitress or something in the Midland Hotel and I sent a postcard to Paul Elliott and Michael Gordon said don't worry about the money, I've got another job and I'll bring the money. And I got the job. Years later, I'm working for Paul Elliott in many shows, one of them being Big Bad Mouse, one of them being Run For Your Wife in the West End. I mean, I've known him all my life since I was 18. And I said to him, why did I get the job at Rill to start off with, hoping he'd say, well, it was your, your audition was so wonderful. He said, no, no. It was the postcard that came saying, don't worry about the money. <laughs> we decided to give you the job. <laughs> so that's how I started off. Well, the good thing is you made a full recovery, and, but it must have been very, very scary at the time. And I bet you remember it like it was yesterday. How old were you when you had the accident? 18. But it's funny because I do remember the crash. And I remember us going round and round in a circle and we thought we were going to die. And I remember thinking, how ironic if I'm going to die now, and I'll never know if I got this job. And I wasn't scared. It was strange. I was just thinking, it's really ironic. <laughs> the fact you weren't scared is, is quite strange, really. Maybe you'd, um, maybe you'd resign yourself to the fact that something awful was going to happen. Yes. I just thought, this is, this is really bad timing. <laughs> so anyway, I started off in weekly rep as a student ASM at £2 a week. You weren't handed anything, so you had to work really hard uh, to get where you wanted to be, which meant you must have really wanted uh, to do this. I did, and I was, I was so lucky because it was a 10-week season and my parents came down halfway through to take me home. And the company said, oh, let her stay, you know, she's doing all right, let her stay. And in fact, the very first play I did, 
was a, a comedy, a farce about tax returns. And it was written by Roy Plumley, who wrote Desert Island Discs. He did Desert Island Discs. And because it was written by Roy Plumley, everybody came to the show, everybody came to the play. And I had the best part. I was the maid in it. And I did it in a thick Birmingham accent. And it was the most wonderful part, this maid. And um, the very first play I did was that. And all these people came and I got offered all this work as a result of this part. So I never went back to drama school. I just carried on working, which was extraordinary. So lucky. Well, it's lucky, but the fact you worked for it. You obviously worked hard, you worked. You were there and you were doing a part-time job and all that kind of stuff as well. When you say your parents came down, when they saw you, did, did they say, yeah, actually, you were right to do this? Or did they still say you should still go and get a trade or work in a bank? <laughs> Just to be safe. <laughs> or had you converted them? <laughs> no, they wanted to take me home. Yeah. And the company ra- sort of rounded round me, came round me, and they said, oh, you know, she's doing all right, give her a chance. And so my parents said, well, my mother said, we'll give you five years. And if you haven't managed to do anything in five years, you have to give it up and go and get a proper job in a bank. And I said, well, okay. So the deal was struck in real, and I forgot all about it. And then, bless her, my mother must have remembered this because five years later I was being incredibly lucky and I was in the West End and I was doing the carry-on films and so on and so forth. And my mother suddenly came and gave me a present and it was a cut glass bowl, which in those days a cut glass fruit bowl was, was quite the thing. <laughs> it's not now, I know. And she gave me this cut glass fruit bowl. I would have been about 23. And she said to me, well, you've done your five years and you seem to be doing all right, so you can stay acting now. <laughs> so she gave me the bowl, which was very sweet. Well, the thing is, it would be a very hard parent to say, you know, see you in a carry-on film and then and say, actually, no, you know, you just still need to go and work in a bank. That would be really quite a hard thing, wouldn't it, if, if she just said that? <laughs> I don't know what she thought about the carry-on yeah. films, but I was doing a play, quite a sort of respectable play in the West End at the time, so she thought that was great. All right. I was doing a thing called The Secretary Bird, The Secretary Bird with um, John Gregson at the Savoy at the time when I was doing the carry-ons. And um, I think it was that play that Peter Rogers had seen me in that gave him the idea of auditioning me for the carry-ons. He'd been to the theatre and seen that. So, again, it was just luck, just luck. Right place at the right time. Yeah. Maybe a certain amount of luck. It is luck, Mark. It's incredible, you know. Yeah, but yeah, if, if you'd not been in that audience that time, you might never have been in a carry-on film. Yeah. Life would be very different, wouldn't it? Yeah. And you weren't always a piper, were you? You started off as a crump. So how did the name change come about? And when did it come about? No, when I started off and I went to Rill, I was, in fact, Jackie Crump. And then I went to mm. Colwyn Bay to finish their season because they asked me to do that. And then I got an agent and I went to York Rep when I was 19. And my agent at the time, Vincent Shaw, who handled all the Rep people, said to me that going to York was a step up and that I'd have to get rid of the word crump because I was with Carol Jenner touring in a horse box at the time, doing plays to schools. And he said, um, you can't go as a crump to York. He said, crump is all right for real, but you can't go as a crump to York. You have to think of a new name. So I was in this horse box touring with, there were six of us in the back of the horse box touring with this Carol Jenner children's adventure story it was. It was sort of pantomime that we went around the schools with. 
So we were stuck in traffic lights. We were stuck in traffic for about an hour. And um, so I said, well, I've got to think of a new name. Can you help me think of a new name? So the game was to choose a new name for me. So I said, I don't want anything theatrical or difficult to spell. I just want it to be straightforward and easy. So it came down to Jackie Frost or Jackie Piper. And I said, I thought Jackie Frost was a bit corny, even for me. So we decided on Jackie Piper. I've no idea why. And there was a girl in the van called Mimi, and she spoke like that. We were still in the traffic jam, so she said, I'll get out of the van and I'll phone equity. And she climbed out of the van while we were still in the traffic lights and phoned equity and said, Jackie Crump is now Jackie Piper. And that was it. And so I went to York as Jackie Piper. And every time they shouted Miss Piper, I stayed where I was because I wasn't thinking it was me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the story I expected. I thought you might say, well, there's already a Jackie Crump in equity, so I have to change my name, which is normally the case, isn't it? Yes. N- not the fact you dreamed up the name in the back of a horse box. That's not what I, I anticipated at all. <laughs> no, no. And it wasn't really me that chose it. It was all the others. We we're all screaming with laughter. All these names were being banded <laughs> about. It was just to keep us amused while we were in the traffic jam. I still see one of those the one of those girls that was in the horse box. I still see one of the actresses that was in the horse box. We still go to the same things together. We're still friends. Lifelong friends. Yes. Your your first big film that was um, the man who haunted himself, wasn't it? That was the first film break mm. uh, before the Carry Ons. Yes. It was Roger Moore, wasn't it? It was. What was it like working with a well a future James Bond? <laughs> well, he was absolutely charming and of course I went to the studio went to the film set to meet him and we did our scene or something and then of course he was you know the star and I was just a small part in the film and they brought tea to him on the set and brought a tray of tea for Mr Moore and he said where's the tea for Miss Piper and he insisted that they brought me some tea which was so sweet I mean I was blown away by his Kindness, really. And then we fast forward to when I'm working at Pinewood and I'm sitting round the notorious table in the dining room with all the other carry-oners and they're completely out of sync with all the other people in the dining room because everybody else is being very beautiful and sophisticated in the carry-on table. They're all screaming and shouting and laughing and throwing buns at one another. Anyway, I'm at this table. There's nowhere else I'd rather have been at this mad hilarious, noisy table, like out of St Trinian's, really. And anyway, across to this table comes Roger Moore, and everybody else around the table is famous apart from me. And he says to me, good afternoon, Miss Piper, and how are you today? It's so nice to see you again. It's Roger Moore. And everybody went, everybody just stopped talking and looked in amazement, including me, that he should come and speak to me. He didn't say hello to anybody else. All the other people were really famous. So... um I was really, yet again, blown away by Roger Moore and his amazing charm. He was lovely. And how did you get, how did the role come about uh, in, in that film? Well, I would have auditioned for it. I would have auditioned. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Moving on to the Carry On films, you were in four altogether. Yes. Carry On at the Jungle was the first one. Yes. That's the one with Terry Scott in as the, uh, as, as Og, the uh, Tarzan-like character. No, Terry Scott. <laughs> I don't Scott. see him as a Tarzan, but he was a Tarzan-like character. You think you may have got the role because Peter Rogers was watching you in a play that you're in? Is that right? Well, I think that what happened was that Angela Douglas was really the one I took over from. And she was married to Kenneth Moore. 
Kenneth Moore had been in the secretary bird and John Gregson had taken over. And I, I think he came to see John Gregson in the secretary bird. I think Peter Rogers and had turned up to see him and Jerry Thomas had turned up to see him. And I was happening to play the secretary bird with John Gregson and they saw me playing at the Savoy. It was just one of those extraordinary things because I'd sort of met Kenneth Moore and Angela Douglas because we'd taken over from them and we went to some party where we met them because John Gregson and I had taken over from them in the play. So it was just one of those things. So then I went to audition out at Pinewood and met um, Gerald Thomas and Peter Rogers. And I remember going in to meet Peter Rogers first and read the script for him. And I said to him, um, oh, don't give me the lead. I've, I've not done very much filming. I've done loads of, of theatre, but I've not done very much filming. So I'd just be really happy with a small part. Don't even think of me for the lead. I must, I must be mad. <laughs> anyway, he took no notice of me and um, gave me the part of June which was the juvenile lead, which was amazing. And then before I'd finished, he gave me a contract for two more years and they never gave it. I don't believe that anyone else was ever given a contract. So I had a contract for work for the next two years with my agent and they sort of specified what they'd pay me over the next two years, each, each film rising a little in <laughs> what I was paid. But of course it was a buyout, so you just get the one fee. So all the repeats you see, you don't get anything for them because you just have, the, everybody had the same, we all had a buyout which was, I was very thrilled, I was very thrilled to get it, actually. So I couldn't believe it. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, yeah. Try, try, oh, try, yeah. try get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Damn, me, me, me. Yo, look, 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 look. No, look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We going to have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. With this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta don't lie. play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit. Sir. And Mark's distinct nostalgia chat with Jackie Piper will continue in just a few minutes. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcast. Distinct drama. Fresh and original. Available now on Distinct Nostalgia, a trilogy of comedy dramas by Carl Chetty, starting with 
Soft centres. When I think of how I've wasted my life here. Starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie. Placing handmade soft centres and nut clusters into poncy dwarf coffins is hardly an achievement. And Joanna Lumley as Millicent. Oh, Frankie's well past this game. He's been here for 30 odd years. He'll be carried out in a box. <laughs> it's probably a gold chockey box with red bows and ribbons. And the story continues in Hard Centres. Well, I'm supposed to be retired, you know, but I'm back in the basement in my own little chockey grotto. <laughs> Starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie and Imelda Staunton as Millicent. Oh, here, I like your new hat, sis. I'll slap you in a minute, you cheeky <laughs> run. You know it is my hat, it's my hair. Sebastian, just done it. Incidentally... Yes, and what's that dirty look for? Your senorita's gone, but not forgotten. My senorita... What did you do to her? Show her your erogenous zone. And we conclude with Dark Centres, starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie and June Brown as Millicent. Is there something going on between you two? Chant to be a fine thing, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Helen Lederer as Mrs Hamilton. So he's given someone a box of hard centres instead of soft centres. So what? That's what dentists are for. And Christopher Ryan as Mr Hamilton. Things are already at half-cock. My tinnitus is getting worse, plus I can't sprint for a taxi anymore without wheezing and drawing on my inhaler. So that's soft centres, hard centres and dark centres by Carl Chetty. Available only on Distinct Nostalgia, wherever you get your podcasts. So when you got into Carry On Up the Jungle, that was the uh, you know the Carry On films franchise had been established. There'd been several Carry On films before that. Yes. So the Carry On team itself were established. You got this uh, group of people who were very much a team, a very much a bit of a clique, I suppose. What was it like yes. going into such an established team or troop of people? Well, it was it, it, it was quite overpowering, but everybody was so lovely to me. But I remember when I was having the interview with Peter Rogers, and he was said that I'd got the part and he was offering the money or something. This must have been after I'd agreed to do it. And um, I was living in a flat in Belsize Park at the time and I couldn't get to Pinewood for whatever time I had to be there, half past five or six o'clock in the morning. There was no public transport that early. So I said to Peter, um, do you think I could have a car to get me to the studios? And he nearly fell off the chair and he said, a car? We have no stars, Miss Piper, in this system. There are no stars. You can have a car, but you have no salary. Or you have a salary and no car. Which, it, which is it to be? And I said, well, I'll take the salary. And then I took a sort of bed and breakfast. I took some digs in the Slough and took a cab at my own expense from Slough, which I could afford. So I stayed in this bed and breakfast in Slough while I did the carry-on up the jungle because I couldn't, I didn't drive. I didn't have a car and I couldn't afford to come. But Peter Rogers' reaction when I asked for a car was hilarious. He was falling on the floor pretending to faint and things. <laughs> I suppose I suppose you could have sort of plead your case and say, look, you know, I don't drive, I live miles away. That's why I'm asking for a car. I'm not asking it for, you know, as a, a perk. I think he would he was he was very he was very, very tight on money. And I remember when I saw my dressing room, it was beautiful. My dressing room had um, a little bathroom and it had a bed in there. And it was all beautifully decorated in pale blue. And I remember saying 
to Peter Rogers, can I stay in my dressing room, do you think? He said, no, of course you can't stay in your dressing room. Nobody stays in their dressing room. <laughs> but he was nicer than my dicks. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'd like to stay here, but I couldn't. Yeah. But I guess it would have been quite spooky staying in the dressing room in the, in the film studio all night on your own. It would have been quite spooky. So I'm glad I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that makes me think about the fact that they, that they were notoriously... Budget conscious, weren't they, the carry-on films, shall we say? They were very yes. done on a small budget. Like you say, everyone had buyouts, there's no repeat fees. Uh, even though, you know, 50-odd years later, you're still seeing the films every bank holiday on the TV. When they were made, the, the budgets were quite tight, weren't they? They were, uh, you know, locations, for example. <laughs> they were The locations were never, very rarely outside Pinewood, weren't they? Never. The only time I went outside was when we did carry-on at your convenience and we went to Brighton for four days. This was a huge excitement that we were leaving the studios. Everybody got completely overexcited. And the other thing, the other way it reflected itself was that having, you know, done other films and commercials and things, I realised how incredible it was that everything was done in take one, very occasionally, to save money, obviously. And also, there is a certain advantage, because when you're doing comedy, often the first take is the best, because it's the most spontaneous. And as you repeat it, it feels to the actor, anyway, to be less spontaneous. But occasionally it was take two, and they'd be going, take two. And it was a hair in the gate or somebody had done something or ad-libbed and you weren't allowed to ad-lib. But it was run in a very strict way. You know, it was done exactly in six weeks. Everything was disciplined and everything was taken in, done in take one. And there were no understudies either. So when Terry and I had to fly through the trees, we were, you know, attached to these harnesses with big hooks between our legs. And we both were in quite a lot of pain as we were lifted up. And Terry Scott screamed as we went into the air, thank God I don't want any more children. And, <laughs> and we were sort of landed on these mattresses and we were, you know, I mean, quite often Terry was calling for Savlon, you know, Savlon to... <laughs> to repair the damage these hooks had done in his nether regions. And I was the same. But, you know, in another film, we would have presumably had stand-ins to crash into trees and fall onto mattresses, but we did all our own stunts, as it were. Yeah, so... No understands. Yeah, uh, like you say, uh, I suppose timing-wise, wasn't it, as well, and film-wise, costs, because obviously it was all shot on film, and if you do two or three takes, it's a lot more expensive for, for the film, isn't it, and the processing? yes. Going back to what you said as well about the ad-libbing, could you not say to the director, I think this would work better or that would work better? Was it purely, here's the script, read it as it is? Was that the premise for pretty much all of the films? It was really. I mean, I wouldn't have been suggesting other lines because I was too new. And But, I mean, a lot of them in there would have been. I mean, some of them would never have stopped. You'd never have got on with the film. So they were very disciplined and... Jerry Thomas used to stand there and laugh at the end of every take, but it, it was very much kept to the to the script. And obviously, people were there was you know someone sitting there listening to the to the lines, making sure that everything was said that was should be said yeah. exactly as it was written. Yeah. I suppose you're right about the if you got Kenneth Williams, Sid James, Bernard Bryce, Lord yes. Terry Scott. I imagine if they all given any free reign, you'd never get them done, would you? The films would never get made, They'd never get finished. No, they never would because they were all very you know seasoned actors and they would have had very strong opinions on how you could have improved a laugh or whatever. But um, I remember when I met Terry Scott for the first time, he was quite sort of worried because I wasn't sort of an experienced film actress, as well he might have been. And he took me straight off to the dressing room to do the lines. Well, I'd been, you know, four years doing 
rep, weekly rep, rep theatre. So I was very good on learning the lines. So we got on famously because as soon as we did our scenes and he saw that I knew all the lines and just knew them, we got on famously. But he was terribly worried when he first met me. But then, then it was great. We had a great relationship. Well, yeah. I, I imagine it's all about timing as well with comedians, isn't it? And, and comic timing. Maybe he was worried about the timing oh. as well to a degree, and that if you could get the timing right, which you obviously did. Maybe he's concerned about that. Yes, I think the timing is probably more vital when you're doing stage, because I'd also done stage with Terry later on in, in life. But, I mean, in a film, I think they can always edit it and, do, and have their input, you know, with the editing. But, yes, I mean, a lot's in the delivery. And, uh, you know, when you're delivering, if you're the person delivering the line that gets the laugh, you need the feed to be very clean and you need to be fed well so that you can deliver the punch blow and get the laugh. And it's all very, very important. And like you say, if you didn't get it right or the timing was slightly off and they couldn't edit it, you'd have to do it again. And obviously that was frowned upon, wasn't it? The, yes. uh, it'd be a take two, wouldn't it? And it's all, yes. no. <laughs> oh, take two, so, yes. so that must have been a lot of pressure on all of your, all of you to get right first time not just delivering the line but the timing and everything that must have been it must have been quite quite stressful I suppose so I wasn't really aware of it at the time because I'd done so much sort of stage work with very little rehearsal so that it was I was used to being scared and just having to deliver on the nose as it were and just just do it quickly I think I was mainly just thrilled with the whole thing and couldn't quite believe what was happening I couldn't really believe anything that ever happened to me. It was just amazing. It just kept happening and happening, and I couldn't really believe it. Yeah. I suppose it was a bit of a whirlwind for you as well, because was it in 1972, two films were shot, weren't they? Carol of the Jungle was one. The second one was Carol and Loving. Were, were they both in 1970? Were they both shot within a, a short period of time? I think so. I think so. Carol at the Jungle was 69, wasn't it? Yes, they used to shoot in the Easter in the April time and then shoot, shoot in the October time. But then the thing was that I was doing plays in town as well, long runs in town. So I was sort of, it was really um, quite hard work because I was, we had to be at the film studio about six o'clock or half past five in the morning or something like that. But that meant you had to leave home a lot earlier. And then I was doing shows and then you'd finish filming at five at night. You'd start filming about eight, I think, and you'd have lunch breaks. And then you'd finish filming about five but then I'd have to go up to town and do whatever play I was doing. Till very late in the evening? Yes, until sort of half past ten. And then get home, get to sleep. I was getting about four hours sleep at the time or five hours sleep. So it was quite tiring at that time. But, you know, when, when you're doing well, everybody wants you. I mean, I really didn't have a night off from work from when I was 18 for six years until I had our first son, Tim, that was the first time I had to lie down when I lay down to have him. <laughs> Honestly, I never stopped. <laughs> but I suppose that's the actor's mentality, isn't it? You know, you, you work when, when the work comes in, you take it and you do it because you never know when your next job's going to be, even though you'd sign a contract to carry on. Exactly. Film. You didn't know how, what was going to happen after that. Or so you're always thinking ahead, you know, uh, squirrel away a, a few quid and work as hard as you can. Well, and your agent is, you know, really wanting you to do every job that comes on the horizon, really. They're really pushing for you. I mean, I remember I was actually in the, in the delivery room having Tim. I was actually in labour and my um, agent rang up and said, you know, I've got a part for Jackie. It was going with Kenneth Williams to do some play in South Africa, I think. My Fat Friend, I think it was called. And he wanted me to start rehearsals sort of 
quite quickly. And my husband said, well, she's actually in, you know, having the baby at the moment, Richard. And he went, oh, dear boy, the rehearsals don't start for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, paracetamol and a lie down, you'd be all right kind of thing, you know. Yes, yes, off you go, dear, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there was, uh, yeah, I, suppose, I suppose Karen Love the Jungle, the first one, and Karen Loving. And one of my favourites, I've got to say, one of my favourite Karen films is Karen at Your Convenience, and that's the one I always, you know, I've, I've seen more than <laughs> more than ever. Um, but it's the one film, even though it's the same standard of quality of writing, acting, humour, etc., it's the same as all the other Karen films surrounding it. But it didn't do so well in the box office, did it? Because of its nature of the, the trade unions, it was like taking the mick of the out yes. of the trade unions, didn't it? Did was that a worry at the time when when that happened and and it sort of didn't bomb at the box office, but wasn't as popular? Did, did producers worry and think wonder what happened? I suppose they must have done. I mean, it, it wasn't. It was more of a dry subject than usual, I suppose. So just you know, just didn't go down as well. I mean, it's it's amazing that it's your favourite because it it isn't usually people's favourite. So your your unique sense of humour, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a carry-on film in a toilet factory. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> I know it's you know, true. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that one and Karen Abroad, I think, are my two favourites. Yeah. If, if I'm honest, it's, it's hard to pick. It's hard to choose. What would you say are people's favourites? Do people talk to you about their favourites? Their favourites, well, they talked to me about the favourites that I was in. A lot of people loved Up the Jungle. Yeah, I did enjoy that. Yes. But uh, currently your convenience was, I don't know, because it's... Yes. And even when uh, we had, um, when they go on strike and Bernard Breslau shouts, everybody out, I still do that. We had a fire alarm at work not long ago <laughs> and uh, we had to get everybody out of the building and I was like, everybody out. And one of my colleagues went, all right, Bernie, take it easy. That was clever that he recognised the... Um, well, what you were alluding to. Yeah, and I think a lot of people of a certain age, if they say everybody out, they do it in that voice. <laughs> everybody out. And you were very prolific in convenience as well, weren't you? Because you had two fellas fighting over you. Uh, Cyril, played by Kenneth Cope. Oh, yes, that's right. And uh, and also... Uh, Richard O'Callaghan. Exactly. And yeah, and you started in two films with Richard, actually, didn't you? Because you were in convenience and also uh, Carry On Loving as well. Yes, I married him in two separate films. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I married him in the, the Carry On Loving and married him in Carry On Your Convenience, which is really funny. And I still see him to this day, Richard. Because um, we, we take part in these carry-on cruises. And the last one we did was in February 2020, just before lockdown. Richard and I were on the high seas on a boat going to America, where they were showing carry-on loving for Valentine's night. So Richard and I were there as to talk about the films. And he's still as lovely as ever. He's such a sweet man. He, he comes across that way. He's 80 now. Is he really? Yeah. He, and he was like you, he's one of the sort of periphery of the main yes. body of the cast, wasn't he? Yes. And, and Kenneth Cope as well, you, you were in two, two with him, because you were, he was in Karen Matron yes. as well as Convenience, wasn't he? Yes, yes. And I used to hear from him sometimes, spoke to him on the phone a few times. Yeah. He was such a sweet man. Yeah. Such a sweet man. And I saw him once at a signing we had to go to. I had to go to the NEC in Birmingham and saw Kenny Cope and his wife some years ago, and it was so lovely to see him. Yeah, he's a great comedy actor, Kenneth Cope. Yeah, yeah love him. Uh, big, big fan, big fan here. You got on well with Terry Scott. Yes. You say you got on well with Terry Scott. You know, you work well together. You were in Jungle together. You're on stage as well together. Um, but what about the other members of the Carry On team? Did you get on with any of them particularly well? I know they were all quite uh, riotous in the. Uh, canteen at Pinewood Studios. I know that's quite notorious. 
their mischievousness is quite uh, notorious. But did you get on with uh, any particular one member of the cast especially well? Well, I got on with all of them. They were all lovely to me. I mean, um, Hattie Jakes and I used to go off. We didn't like to watch The Rushes, which was very silly of me because looking back, I should have watched The Rushes to see how I could have improved. But it made me self-conscious and I didn't like watching myself acting and I preferred to just do it as best I could, do it as naturally as I could. I didn't really like... And Hattie Jakes also hated watch, watching The Rushes. So when everybody went to watch The Rushes about half past ten in the morning, she and I would go rushing off to have a cup of coffee and a big cake. <laughs> so we were sort of great chums going off to eat things and miss The Rushes. Joan Sims was absolutely lovely. I mean, she was just lovely, absolutely lovely. There was one occasion where she had a body stand-in, I think on Carrying Up the Jungle, there was a shower scene where she's supposed to be naked. And we're sitting there in the chair next to Joan Sims and I are sitting there and she's admiring her body as the, in the body stand-in and saying, oh, I've got a lovely body. They chose a very nice body for me. We're sitting there shrieking with laughter. And No, she was just adorable. They all were. And Kenny, Kenny Williams used to like to tell me his jokes because I was new to the group and I hadn't heard any of his stories and he was always very reluctant to stop telling me his latest story and Jerry, Jerry Thomas would be screaming at him Kenneth will you come over here and do this shot please and he'd go oh I'm just telling Miss Piper this story just telling her this story and he'd you know, be busy sort of telling me some latest story and he was lovely well they all were can't say, can't say anybody in particular Yes, Kenny, the famous raconteur. Yes. I, I just think of Michael Parkinson interviews when I think of him quite often. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful. So they were all fantastic. And Mark's distinct nostalgia chat with Jackie Piper will continue in just a few minutes. As well as amazing interviews just like the one you're listening to now, the Distinct Nostalgia podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz. Oh, I've never heard of it. Where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. A brand new season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner cell block. Someone B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply pick your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com or by messaging us on Twitter. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz. Got there in the end. <laughs> If you're a Blue Peter fan, you'll enjoy something special we've got coming soon. Tim Vincent is going in search of Valerie Singleton, and he'll be meeting one or two others along the way. Hi, Peter. It's Tim Vincent. How are you? Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? Nice to hear from you. I'm not too bad. i tell you why I'm ringing up. I'm trying to get hold of Valerie's number, by any chance. What, Singleton? Yes. Hmm. I'm not sure I've got her now. I've got an address somewhere. Well, I'm tempted to ask, why do you want Val's phone number, Tim? I'll only pass it on to you if you divulge why you want it. <laughs> Tim Vincent, as I breathe. What are you calling me for? What do you want? H- Hello? T- Tim? 
Tim, Tim Vincent. Tim Vincent. Oh, Carl. It's Tim. Just it's about 20 minutes or something. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm that's busy. Tim Vincent from Blue Peter. Listen out for In Search of Valerie Singleton with Tim Vincent very soon on Distinct Nostalgia. It's a tough one with it, with it, because you had the four over the two years. Did did you want to do more after that? Would you have carried on doing that, or did you, after the two years contract that you had, did you feel like I've done my bit now for the carry-ons? I want to change, or would you would you have carried on doing carry-ons? <laughs> I I think I would have carried on, but the thing is that during the last one, Carry On Matron, I was pregnant with our first son. I hadn't realised I was, and then I had him. And then I just was never, again, I was working all the time and I was doing this children's television series called Hogsback, which was every week with Derek Royal. And during that, I became pregnant with our second son and had to be only filmed from the waist up or looking round corners of windows or doors because I was enormously huge with Nicholas. So then I had two sons. And then after I'd had two sons, and then during when I had just had Tim, I was doing loads of things. I did Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin, I think, and the two Ronnies. And I don't know, I never seemed to stop. Oh, and after I had Tim, I think I said, I'll only do television and film because theatre is just too, it takes up too much of your life with a child. You know, I'd never see, never see Tim. So I just specified, I'll only, very grandly, really, I'll only do film and television. I mean, how grand is that? But then I was getting so much work offered, I could be choosy. So I just did film and television. And again, I never stopped, never stopped, never stopped. I mean, I can't really remember all the stuff I did. And then I had Nick, and then all more work was pouring in, and I really found it difficult coping with all the work and two little boys. And um, I should have had a nanny, but I couldn't face having a nanny. I thought, why, why would I have a nanny when I've got two little boys? The time will go so quickly. So I gave the business up. And you want to watch them grow up? Yes, I thought it was mad. I mean, I could have done. I could have done a different thing and... I had so much work being offered. I mean, I was so lucky. I had really scripts flying through the door, so much work. And I thought, well, I'll give up for six years. My agent was saying, really? Is this what you want to do? And I said, well, I'll never have this time with the children again. So he said, well, I'll be your agent forever, which was very kind of him. He said, when you want to come back to work, let me know. So after six years, when they were both full-time school, I did go back to work and I went back to a plain town called No Sex, Please, We're British for a year. And that was the first thing I did again. That was when the youngest one was six and the eldest one was about nine. And we had an au pair. We had an English au pair and I let them choose the au pair and I went back to work again. But that was, that was you know, when they were old enough to have opinions and if they weren't happy, they'd tell me. And being in the theatre... I was then able to be at home in the day and see them to school and be there when they came home and then go off to work at night when my husband would come home. So I sort of fitted it around the family. Yeah, so you could do the school runs and everything. Yes. And spend time with them and yes. stuff and then, then go, off to, go off to work and let him deal with them, putting them to bed and all that. Yes, I was trying to... Well, I had the au pair as well. I had the other au pair who was called Jackie as well. And um, so I was just trying to balance all the plates in the air. But I, I don't remember regretting not going back to the carry-ons, because I was always working on something else. So when you're busy working, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I was doing the next carry-on, because you're busy doing whatever it was you were doing. So I wasn't really aware of that. And also, you want that variety, don't you? You don't want to be doing the same thing over and over. 
playing the same character over and over, do you? Is, is, looking at the, the work you've done, there was a lot of different stuff, lots of variation, different characters and stuff. And that's, that's as, as an actor, that's what you want, isn't it? It is, really. I mean, it was that was what was so lovely about theatre. I played so many different characters in theatre. But then, really, truthfully speaking, you don't get much say in what's offered. It just comes and you go, oh, how wonderful. And I tended to say yes to most things. And I wasn't really conscious of trying to decide which way my career should go. I just went with whatever came through the door, really, or whatever my agent rang up to say had been offered. I was just deeply grateful and got on with it. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Because you, like we said earlier on, you don't know where your next job's coming from. No, so no. you take what's on offer, don't you? Yes, with me anyway. I expect some people are more thinking how to direct their career, but I was just deeply grateful to be working. So You're doing what you wanted to do at the time. Mm. You're obviously working very, very hard, um, what were you getting, four hours of sleep a, a night were you getting, something like that? Yes. And you know, and that was carrying on after the carry-on films. You, you know, had a full diary for, for, for a long time afterwards. Oh, loads of stuff, loads of stuff. And because it was so busy, so much going on, you know, it's probably all a bit of a blur. But do you, do you have any particular memories of uh, something which was a, a particular highlight of your career outside of the carry-on films? Well, I remember doing The Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin and I remember thinking this, I did two series of that, I think. And I think I became pregnant at the end of the second series or something with the second child. I forget which order these things happened in, but I know I was always working or unable to work because of having a child. But um, the scripts were so wonderful. I used to look forward to David Nobbs's scripts. I thought they were brilliant, of the rise and fall of Reginald Perrin. They were such brilliant scripts because they really stood out to me as being brilliantly written. And I was thrilled to be involved in that and of course that was with Leonard Rossiter who was amazing. And what was Leonard like to work with? Was he fun? Was he very focused? You know, Was he a perfectionist? Absolutely. I was amazed. He, he was very driven I would say and I remember us filming and we'd, we'd you know when it came to lunchtime we'd all be in the pub having a sandwich and something to drink and relaxing and Leonard never never seemed to relax. He was sort of always talking to the writer or the director. I mean, I suppose he must have had something to eat and drink, but he never seemed to stop to me. He was very, very driven all the time, and I was amazed by his worth ethic. I mean, he was just never really stopped. And later I did a commercial with him where I think he had the Chinsano fall over him or something, and I was the air hostess. And he was always, you know, it was a great loss to the profession because he died very young. But he used to play a lot of squash and try and keep fit, but he was very, very driven, amazing. Whereas the other people that I loved working with, I did um, a series, it uh, was on the serial for the two Ronnies, and um, Ronnie Barker used to notice everybody else's lines and what laughs they get, and they go to the cameraman, or can you give a close-up on her? I love the way she delivers that line, or can you give a close-up on him? I like the way he delivers that line. And he was the most generous person I've ever worked with. He saw the show as a whole and he wanted all the actors to get laughs and he was so relaxed and laid back. He wasn't at all... Well, he, he must have been driven, but he didn't show it. He was very relaxed and laid back and taking an interest in every single bit of the television programme being shot, everybody's performance, the way it was done, whereas most people are locked into doing their own performances because they need to be to, to when you're so... High up the profession like that, you have to concentrate to keep your position. But he he was amazing. I always remember Ronnie Barker. 
And I suppose because the, the, the pressure was on him, you know, it was his show, it was on his shoulders. I, su- I suppose he could have been a big ego, couldn't he? No, he, he was just extraordinary because I've, I've worked with other comedians. I've worked with so many comedians in my life. And if, you know, they are very prone to sort of, if you get a laugh, they'll cut the line, the feed line for your laugh. They don't want you to get a laugh. They only want the laughs for themselves. But that wasn't Ronnie Barker. It was amazing. But that's probably why you look back at the two Ronnies and stuff and that's why they're so successful. Yes, he was so talented. Well, still my favourite open all hours. I still love him in that. Yes. Yeah, his timing was impeccable and, and the stutter and everything. He was just a, a, a comic genius. Uh, and I remember interviewing David Jason a few years ago and he was saying that um, Ronnie Barker was very generous to him uh, with his knowledge, with um, giving him a share of the pie with the comedy and you know not hogging all the lines yes. and the laughs for himself. Yes, I worked with David Jason years ago. We did a Galton and Simpson comedy together and we played newlyweds with Jimmy Edwards in the episode, who I did Big Bad Mouse with later, and Pat Coombs in the episode. And someone showed me it recently because I hadn't seen it. And it's so funny looking back and seeing David and I playing these newlyweds together with all these wonderful, talented comedy actors. He was lovely to work with. I just did the one Galton and Simpson with him. Yeah, look at him now. Bless him. I know. Odell boy. I know. He's done so well. <laughs> it was one of those situations where I met him because I've, I'm a huge fan of Fools and Horses. Uh, and I was, I was quite worried about meeting him. But as soon as you met him, I thought, I didn't need to worry about meeting him. No. You know, because sometimes they say, don't meet your heroes. Uh, and I met him and he was just so, so nice and so yes. just genuinely down to earth. And... Yes, lovely guy. So as well as the Carry On films and other films and lots of theatre, you also did uh, a lot of television as well. Z Cars, for example. Gosh, that's a long time ago. When you did it, was, it, it wasn't live, was it? Because um, the early ones were live and then they recorded them, didn't they? That one so was, was live. Was it recorded? Or... That one was live, yes. You did a live one? I did a live one. That must have been terrifying. It was a bit scary. <laughs> and I was playing a Welsh girl in it. My mother said to me, how on earth are you going to do a Welsh accent? You don't do accents. And I said, oh, well, manage, I'll just go up and down. <laughs> and it seemed to be all right. <laughs> so I did that. And then there was another, what was the other police thing I did after that? You did Softly, Softly. Softly, Softly, that was it. I did that, and that was absolutely wonderful. But it was with this wonderful lady director called Paddy Russell, I think her name was. And I was playing opposite Ray Brooks. And I was playing this kind of psychopathic young burglar, psychopathic burglar, who used to wreck everywhere after she burgled it. And the only thing she had in her life that she loved was her dog. Well, I can't remember, but I do remember trying to film this thing. We started off filming it. And there were all these strikes in the television company at the time and had to keep being stopped for strikes. Well, it took a year to do with three attempts. When I did the final attempt, we finally did it. The dog I'd started off with had died and I had a new dog. And this dog wouldn't, didn't like me at all and wouldn't come with me. And I had to drag this dog along on this lead. And if you could see what was happening off camera, I was dragging this snarling dog and trying to sort of make it love me with bits of meat and things because this was the only thing I loved, uh, this dog. And then I, I loved doing it so much and I, I played this, you know, really awful killer which was so against casting that I'd been doing before, so against type. And it went down very well and then I did another thing for Paddy afterwards. 
with Ray, I can't remember what it was, but as a result of doing that, things tend to lead, if you're lucky, to other things. So I do remember doing that, and I do remember this dog being dead by the time we finally came to record <laughs> the final take. <laughs> so I'm just funny. thinking about the fact that seeing you chatting to you now, and somebody else looked and thought, psychotic burglar. I know who'll do for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well... When I was very young, I played in a rep company called the Century Theatre, which we used to tour around in a box that unfolded everywhere. And we did eight plays a week. And we used to change the play, you know, every night we'd do a different play. And we did the most amazing plays. And one of them was Day in the Death of Joe Egg. And I played the, um, the spastic in the wheelchair, you know, that had to have fits and things, say, playing things that were different. And there were letters into the theatre objecting that this poor child had been bought from some home and, and it was terrible and how could they think of doing such a thing, bringing this child out of the home? So that was quite interesting, <laughs> having to learn how to do fits. I was going to say, you must have yeah. convinced the, the audience. Yes, yes, I had to learn to dribble and have fits and be in the wheelchair. It was quite a thing to do. But amazing. Yeah. I love being able to play parts that are so different and so varied. It's great fun. Yes. And you would have had to, you know, research that as well, you know, a, a meaty role like that. Um, have you had a particular, looking back, have you had a particular favourite role? I'm not just talking about carry-on films or theatre, TV. It could be any of them. Do you have one that particularly stands out as a, as a, as a firm favourite? Well, I loved... I was in a tour of Hobson's Choice with Bill Maynard playing my father, playing Maggie in Hob Hobson's Choice. And the, the tour went on for a long, long time, about 10 months all round England. And I loved playing Maggie in Hobson's Choice because the script was so wonderful and the rest of the cast was so wonderful. And Bill Maynard as well, as comedy actors go. Yes, he was larger than life. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I know, it was, it was really lovely doing that. So you've done quite a lot of TV, uh, a lot of police stuff. You did Z Cars, you did Softly Softly. Um, you also did a couple of episodes of The Bill. Yes, uh, The Bill, I was a drug addict's mother or something and had to weep a lot. Right. <laughs> and um, the director didn't think I looked dowdy enough, so they said, take all her makeup off and they said she hasn't got any makeup on so they put her in put me in very dowdy clothes that were too large for me and they hung off me like large clothes and eventually he was satisfied that I looked dowdy enough to play this character that's that's a good compliment isn't it if, if you if you've got no makeup on they still say you're not dowdy enough yes that's a real compliment isn't it well when I was first at York Theatre Royal I played the young Jack Hawkins part in St Joan playing this young boy in battle and so all the cast used to come in and throw bits of dirt on my face. They thought it was hilarious because I was playing this young boy in battle and they all liked to come put a rubber bit of dirt on me before I went on stage, <laughs> playing this young boy. You've done your fair share of TV, you've done several films and a lot of, of theatre, but do you have one preference of those that you like the most? Do you have a favourite or, or do you just want to act? Well, I think it just depends on what comes into view, really, what comes onto your lap. I'm doing a radio play very shortly, playing a nurse in something, which will be fun to do. But you never know what's coming. And when the job comes along, I just love it and just throw myself into whatever it is. And that becomes the best thing since sliced bread that's on my lap. We'll see how it goes. That's one thing we've not really talked about um, so far. We've talked about uh, films, TV and stage. What about radio? Have you, have you done a lot of radio? Do you enjoy radio? Not a lot. I have done some. When I was in um, No Sex, Please, We're British, 
the guy playing my husband, Giles Cole, was a, is a writer as well, and he wrote a radio play that he wanted me to do, so I did that. And I've done various comedy programmes on the radio, which I can't remember. I did one with Trevor Peacock. I was so thrilled to work with these people, and it's, I can't really remember. I haven't done very many. No, I haven't done many. But I have loved what I've done. It's wonderful. I always wanted my dream, because I come from Birmingham, my dream was to be in the Archers, of course. But I've never even met anybody from the Archers or been for an interview or anything. But I always used to think it would be simply wonderful because I still listen to that. It's the only thing. I remember listening to it at my granny's house. It's the only thing that's still in my life, that's been in my life all my life, is the Archers. And I would love to have done the Archers. I'm surprised you've not done that. I have to try and sort that out. <laughs> oh, yes, that would be wonderful, because I could do the Birmingham accent, you see, easily. Talking to you now and, and seeing your, your films and TV, you, you've got the RP accent. The RP accent? Well, sometimes I have and sometimes, sometimes you... I haven't, Mark. It depends when you catch me. <laughs> I was going to say, do you drop back into Brummie or if, if you get angry? Because I find people speak with a neutral accent, then they get angry and they go back into their native accent. Do, do you do that? Do you go back into Brummie if you're annoyed? I think when I'm in Birmingham, when I'm in Birmingham, I sometimes become a bit more Birmingham when I'm in Birmingham. I just kind of join in to the thing I feel so comfortable with. But um, my grandparents were Northern, so I can do the Northern accent very easily and happily. But yes, I suppose when, when I was growing up, you had to speak, when I went to drama school, you had to learn to speak properly like, properly like, not going to Birmingham. Oh, yes, the, uh, the Queen's English sort of clipped... Accent, yes. uh, the uh, received pronunciation accent, yes. as they call it. So your Brummie accent's pretty good because uh, you're from there. Yes. You can do your northern as well. Yes, I've done lots of northern accents. So Coronation Street or Emmerdale, you could you could be in either of those if you wanted. Oh, I'd love that, yes, yes. Is yes. there anything else left that um, you want to do? Um, maybe I should rephrase that because that makes it sound like you're at the, at the end of the road, which you're not because you're still strong <laughs> and working. But you've obviously done so many things. Is there anything left that you really, really want to do that you haven't done in your uh, very illustrious career? Um, I don't know. Any, any, any of the above, Mark? Could you just um, put a word in in your, I'll, in I'll your inimitable you. way? Yes. No, leave it with me. With... I'll, I'll, yes, I'll do my best for you. <laughs> Because you look at soaps nowadays and they're very different to how they used to be. Uh, quick turnaround, six episodes a week, no time to rehearse. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of work, isn't it? All the work I've done in the past, we never had time for rehearsals. All those early training years, we never had hardly any time for rehearsals. Just had to get on quickly and do it, rather like they do the television now. So it was less of a shock when I did... Um, Doctors, I remember the other actors in it were quite shocked because you just rehearse, record, rehearse, record, whereas I didn't find it such a shock because of, well, the, 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 all the theatre stuff I'd done and then the carry-ons were like that, weren't they? Rehearse, record, rehearse, record, all the take one. So it wasn't such a terrible shock to me. I hadn't had weeks and weeks of rehearsal. I'd been used to it. It's, it's interesting you say that because I thought in, in years gone by... With film and TV, there was more time to rehearse. The, you know, things were, were different. It was a, a slower pace. You know, I thought it was only in this day and age where things are very quick turnaround with the amount of programmes we have and the technology we have. But obviously that, that wasn't the case, was it? When you think of the carry-ons, the carry-ons weren't like that. There was no time to rehearse. You just had to do it. And all those years in rep, you just had to do it quickly. So it was good training for you. It was, really. Good uh, discipline is the word. It's a good discipline for you. Yes, yes. I think maybe you get a better better performance. You probably get better performances if you have like five weeks to rehearse. Yeah. 
and work all the subtleties out. But I never had that. And like you said earlier on, if you yeah, if you do the first take, especially with a, a comical bit, it's normally better because you've got the timing right because it's more off the cuff. Yes. Whereas if you've got time to rehearse it, like you say, you lose the nuances. Yes. And there's one final thing I want to talk about, one th- final thing to get your, your uh, perspective on. Every few years, they'll talk about making another carry-on film, even this far down the line. Do you think they could make a carry-on film or a carry-on style film today? I don't know. I, w- I would love that to be the case, but I'm just not sure. Depend very much on the script. I think so much depends. I think the actors are wonderful the way they do things, but if they haven't got a good script... It's the script that's the main thing. If they get a really good script, I'm sure there's enough talent in this country to replicate the carry-ons and we've enough brilliant people in comedy to do that. But I suppose it could never be replicated completely, but it would be a modern version. But I'm sure there's the talent to do it if they've got the right script. But whether they get the money in to do it, I don't know. I've been, I've been approached various times and then nothing's ever come of it, you know, so... It's a shame, really. But you never say never. And that's the key, isn't it, uh, to do a modern version of it, not to try and replicate uh, the original films, because you no. can't really do that, can't, can you? No. They're, they're off their time. Oh, yes, you can't. It has to be... A fresh take, um, a, re- a reimagining, if you will. Yes, of course. But comedy's comedy. Pe- people always want to laugh. I mean, I mean, especially in times like this, I think the harder life is the more people want to laugh. And the number of people that have said to me, the carry-on should be on the NHS. People just want to laugh. They should show them after operations and things, you know, in the wards, show the carry-ons, just to get people laughing. And I think I'm going to finish it there because that really is a lovely way to end. (laughs) Uh, It's been lovely talking to you. Lovely talking to you too. My absolute pleasure. Jackie Piper, thank you for talking to us today on Distinct Nostalgia. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure and thrill to be here. Sorry it's really over now. Lovely, lovely talking to you. Jackie Piper talking to Mark Burroughs for Distinct Nostalgia. And still to come in our mini carry-on season, he was Lewis Boggs in Carry On At Your Convenience. Richard O'Callaghan on playing Kenneth Williams' son in the 1971 carry-on romp about U-Bends and B-Days. Bernie Breslau was one of the kindest people, I think, that I've ever met. We were on the pier and there were public wandering around quite a lot of the time when we weren't actually shooting and people would come up to him and say, hello, are you Mr Breslau? Yes, darling, hello. How are... And he would talk and chat and sign autographs. He was the most... He would respond to the people around him. Richard O'Callaghan on playing Kenneth Williams' son in the 1971 carry-on romp about U-Bends and B-Days. Plus Julian Holloway, who starred in eight carry-ons, including classics like Up the Kyber and Camping. The nice thing about the films was that, by and large, it was a very, very good, decent group of people who were fun, who were... Lovely, so you used to look forward to going to work. The mini carry-on season continues very soon on Distinct Nostalgia.